I'm Brian Fabian Crane and I'm here with Sebastian Couture. We just got back from Amsterdam where we attended Bitcoin 2014 conference, which took place from May 15th to 17th. It was the second conference organized by the Bitcoin Foundation and over 1,000 people gathered for three days of talks and conversations. We had the opportunity to interview many speakers and attendees and talk about their projects and perspectives. We will release those episodes over the coming weeks. So to kick off our coverage of the event, we have the keynote presentation by Patrick Byrne, the CEO of Overstock.com. Overstock became the first major retailer to accept Bitcoin at the beginning of the year. And in his presentation, he talked about the history of liberalism and the upcoming crypto revolution. Enjoy the keynote. generous introduction. Uh, members of the Bitcoin Foundation Board, ladies and gentlemen, crypto cryptographers, computer scientists, uh, finance geeks, quants, Austrian economics theorists, uh, I think there's a, maybe a couple gangsters in the room, journalists who are trying to make sense of it all. It is a surreal honor to be invited to speak with you today, uh, both because of who you are and because this is taking place in Holland, in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands, I should say. Uh, and I would be remiss if I did not take a moment to acknowledge a debt that historians generally overlook in my country, the United States, and in other Commonwealth, or Commonwealth countries, uh, a debt owed to Holland, to the, I'm sorry, to the Netherlands, to, uh, and that is the creation myth, so to speak, in the, in the United States is that we had these founding fathers, the Constitution was written, Declaration of Independence. Those who know something know that though our founding fathers read a lot of an English philosopher named John Locke, who was a social contract theorist, wrote a book called uh, Two Treatises on Government. Uh, and maybe we know that there were these people, the pilgrims, who came to our country with some notions of religious toleration and such. So we see the intellectual history of our country as coming from these two sources. What is generally overlooked in this story is the enormous contribution our hosts, the Dutch, uh, made to that process. And it's a, it's, a, it's a story that's generally overlooked, but I'll be touching on it later. Uh, so first, I want to thank uh, uh, them uh, for hosting this, and I'll tell you just for a moment, I'll spend a moment about uh, who I am. You may have, a few months ago, Wired did a, a large story uh, about me, and, and I'll just point out they called me in this the Bitcoin Messiah. Just to be clear, I'm not the Messiah of anything. And as much as I favor Bitcoin, or I love Bitcoin, it's, I'm really a, uh, I'm about the crypto revolution. I'm about the cryptocurrency and other missions for this technology. Uh, I'll also mention that, point out, I was called the scourge of Wall Street. I could spend hours telling you how this came about, but I just want to tell you one, I'm going to give you one amuse-bouche uh, of uh, out of a decade-long story, and that is, but just to give you an idea of who you're listening to, uh, and maybe you don't want to listen, in January 2007, a, a very well-known and actually well-regarded hedge fund manager in New York 
uh, kind of an elder statesman of the industry, not himself a bad guy, and a fellow I had known at a distance for some years, asked me to come see him. And I went to sit with him, and there was a witness there, and this has all been actually vetted by this journalist, this is all true. The, uh, this very well-known hedge fund guy sat me down, big guy, and his opening words were, Patrick, uh, you need to know you are the most hated man I've ever known in my entire life. You used to be kind of a golden boy here on Wall Street, but now you could kill people and you wouldn't be hated like we hate you in this town. So, of course, to me, I mentioned to you, that, that's high praise. I mean, <laughs> they can carve on my tombstone that in January 2007, I was the most hated man on Wall Street. And how I got that way actually ties in rather a deep way to what brings me here today. Uh, I should apologize now if any of you, if this talk isn't what you were expecting. If you're expecting a guy to get up and talk about blockchains and stuff, I'm not the guy. Uh, I want to talk about the historical context in which I see the Bitcoin revolution and the cryptocurrency revolution. Alas for you, I can't really do that without talking a lot about history. So if you didn't expect to come to a lecture this morning that included a lot on history and philosophy, I hope you can get your money back, but that's, that's what I've brought. Uh, I'm going to start with discussion of two books that invite us to view civilizations as operating systems. One, probably known to many people here, uh, is Snow Crash. Now, Snow Crash is kind of a cyberpunk Bible. It, was, it came out in the very, it came out about 92, 91. And for one thing, it's known for being really quite visionary about the direction the internet would develop. Uh, what they call the metaverse, but what we came to know as the World Wide Web, even Facebook, uh, the idea of distributed republic. This is kind of the Bible for anarcho capitalists, if there are any of those here. Uh, memes, actually the concept of a meme actually comes out of this book and many other things. But the real value of this book, it is invites us to view civilization as operating system. You know, nobody gets all excited. There's, there's Unix and DOS and Windows and Mac and Linux and nobody gets, nobody kills each other about which is the right operating system. It's all just, there are other virtues than truth when you're talking about an operating system. Well, he invites us to view history the same way, that this is really that Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, East Asian Confucianism, these are operating systems, and history is an enormous petri dish where these different organisms are in a Darwinian struggle to, to figure out what the, what the best operating system is. And taking that a step further, a book that came out just a, a couple years later by Francis Fukuyama, Trust. Now, Fukuyama wrote a fam another famous book called The End of History. He's kind of the last Hegelian of the 20th century. Uh, but his point of trust is, his point in this is that you can view different cultures and civilizations as operating systems to solve one central problem. And that problem is how far does trust extend in a society? If you're in a low-trust society, family-based society, China, Taiwan, Italy, you don't, his argument is that you don't trust people outside the family, which means that you don't get businesses bigger than, 
something that a family, maybe a large family, can run. And that means that you're limited, you give up economies of scale, was his argument, as opposed to high-trust institution-based societies where you can trust outside of your family, you can trust institutions, you can trust things like the government, you can trust shareholder corporations and, and all this plumbing and mechanism that underlies the modern world. And because you have that trust in a high-trust society, you get efficiencies of scale, you get et cetera, et cetera. That's his argument. I'll be circling back to that. Uh, so now, history. George Orwell said that you could imagine the future as a boot stepping on a human face over and over forever. I don't think that's true, and I don't think that's going to be true because of folks like you. But thinking of, of that as an operating system, that was in fact the, the family of operating systems throughout all of history till about 500 years ago were more or less some variation of that operating system. Uh, then, something really odd happened 500 years ago here in Spain. And of course, the Europeans among you do not need to be reminded. Once, 500 years ago, Europe was a, a sea of Spain with an island of France in it. But this was Spain. And in these northern provinces, well, this was part of the Spanish territory, as was England, uh, the co-monarchs, Ferdinand II, Whenever I see Game of Thrones and I see Joffrey, I think of Ferdinand II, this strange idea started developing in the north. And it was a collection of ideas, uh, generally philosophers called liberalism. The, the basic common DNA of them all was that uh, the consent of the governed mattered. And started off in two places in the Spanish Empire. One was here in the Netherlands. Uh, where ideas like tolerance, pluralism, constitutional uh, federation of free states, and peace emerged. And it's hard to imagine, right? Like some scientists prove somehow that fish don't know that they swim in water. I don't know how to prove that, but they don't know that they swim in water. We live in a modern world, and it's hard to remember what the world looked like before these ideas came along. But this was not at all intuitive to people. Uh, Erasmus, the great Catholic theologian, the University of at Rotterdam is named after, uh, he introduced these concepts like religious toleration, political toleration, and pacifism. Baruch Spinoza, the great one, from right here. And if, you're, if you have time here, you should visit the National Museum and learn a bit about it. And, but Spinoza came up with the idea of the self, the modern idea of the self as an agent to whom consent, from whom consent mattered, and who is capable of consent that mattered in the political system. Maybe these ideas emerged here of tolerance, pluralism, and constitutionally protected freedom emerged here perhaps because of the middle class, the merchants. I should mention that also a, a General historians consider a large factor is the expulsion of Jewish people from Spain and Portugal. And they came here, this, the best one, well, Portuguese ones came here. In fact, in the synagogue here in town, which I also suggest you visit, uh, they spoke Portuguese into the 20th century because it had such an influence. Uh, if you were a Marxist, you might also say windmills, the invention of windmills here. Uh, gave this society a great deal of cheap, abundant energy, gave it a huge advantage, competitive advantage over everybody else. 
and everything else I just mentioned is this ideological superstructure that came with this economic development, technological development. Uh, but these ideas emerged here, and interestingly, a group of separatists, that would be English Protestants, who didn't believe they could reconcile with the Church of England, they came here. They came here at the beginning of the 1600s, and they lived here for about two decades in Leiden. They finally got fed up. They actually loved it here, and they learned, they, they, were, they learned these values. They learned that a society modeled on, this kind of, on these kind of principles could work. They were discouraged, though, quite literally, by the effect on their young that was had by Amsterdam. The licentious and wicked ways of Amsterdam was corrupting their young. And so they picked up and they sailed to North America, where we know them as the Pilgrims. But they actually, and we give all this credit, we think of England as the, as the cradle of liberty. But in fact, it was all conceived here. Also, John Locke, whom I mentioned, who had such an effect on our founding fathers, he came here, sitting out in some of the English Civil War, spent three years here, went back and wrote this famous book, Two Treaties of Government, that became sort of the founding inspiration for the U.S. Revolution and, uh, and much that came after, at least in the British Commonwealth. So these, that's why I say these ideas owe such a profound debt to this country, uh, the cause of freedom, U.S. Constitution. That's one side. The other thing that was going on in Spain about 400 years ago, very interesting, at the University of Salamanca, a group of scholastic Jesuit and Dominican friars came up with, they became the first economists, and they introduced, they discovered notions that were kind of lost and not rediscovered for 300 years. But things like the subjectivist theory of value, which we now equate with Marshall and the Cambridge School of Economics, 1880s, that was actually first developed by Jesuit and by the scholastics in Salamanca. The possibility of socialist calculation, which uh, is, it's again, a main theme of the second half of 20th century economics. Uh, quantity theory of money, the equivalence of cash deposits and demand deposits, in other words, why fractional reserve banking isn't a good idea. Uh, the value of entrepreneurship, value of property and contract, uh, and again, a piece, an anti-imperial platform that was quite critical of this, the days of Spanish imperialism from within Spain. Well, something funny happened to this, to this school. They bounced, these thoughts bounced through Spain, Italy, to the eastern edge of the Spanish Empire at the time, the eastern edge, the eastern reign, the Österreich, i.e. Austria. And they went into hibernation for about 250 years. And about 150 years ago, they came out of hibernation in the form of the Austrian School of Economics. And those who I met here last night and this morning who think of themselves, they say, as Austrian school guys, it actually all started, didn't start on Austria, it started here, well, it started in, in Salamanca. And I consider these two schools, I consider these, this generally the heart of liberalism, of liberal political philosophy, of, of uh, pro-freedom, pro I, like I like to call this 
this way of thinking. Now, I, people always object, well, sometimes people object to me, maybe not in this crowd. You can't hijack the word freedom. You can't say you're pro-freedom, other people are. Well, there are people among us who call, in our society, who call themselves progressives. And if they hijack the word progress, I think I can hijack the word freedom. This is to be understood in opposition to the great philosophical mistake. And this all circles back in one more slide, I promise. It circles right back into Bitcoin and what you're doing. But I need to describe this great philosophical mistake. Basically a virus that was introduced into the operating system of liberalism. It was introduced, and it's authoritarianism, and it's key, if the key element of the DNA of liberalism is consent to the government, for authoritarianism, it's submission. Uh, the great enemy of mankind, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, introduced it. His, book, his version of the social contract, written really in answer to Locke, makes this very extraordinary claim that, you know, so finally, the, basically, the, the, authority, the control freaks knew that they had lost. The Enlightenment come, and they had lost their grip on history, so they subverted it with this idea that, okay, it is consent that matters. It is the consent of the government, but not in this silly way that John Locke understood it. We, intellectual French, understand it in a much deeper way, I, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, understand that there is something that he terms la volonté générale, the general will of the people. And that is important, that is what matters, but it's not to be determined by silly voting or something. That in fact, there may only be one person among us in a nation who understands what the real will of our people is, what the real will uh, of the nation is. And that, that person, as the sovereign, has no need to give no, give no guarantee to its subject, no constraints. There need be no constraints on it. His will is or should be nothing but the law. This Robespierre, uh, when he forces everyone to obey his will, it looks, it just looks like tyranny, said Rousseau, but it isn't tyranny because he's forcing people to be free. And true freedom is found in submission to this force that understands the general will, that understands the real historical mission of our nation, of a nation. And that's true freedom. Well, this was, uh, Voltaire read this and wrote a famous response to Rousseau, where he said, uh, I've received, sir, your new book against the human race, and thank you for it. One longs in reading your book to walk on all fours. <laughs> I love Voltaire. Bertrand Russell was once asked, did he have a Bible? And he said, yes, I keep it over there under my Voltaire. <laughs> so Voltaire was correct, but unfortunately he didn't win the day. This became a really dominant strain in, our, in modern political philosophy, started with Rousseau, led to Kant, who, you know, Kant was a pietist working away in Kronigsberg, famously never left the city, in his bare pietist study, he had one adornment, a, 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 a portrait of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And in his Teutonic way, he worked out the implica implications of this theory in this, well, grand and, and Teutonic way, develops the idea of ein Volk, ein Volk of, of the mission of a, of a people. And that freedom, freedom is found in subordination 
to this mission, that that's true freedom. Not, not the freedom that the phenomenal self looks in, which is just what you or I want to do, the pursuit of happiness. Life, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness is how Locke put it. But that's just this sort of superficial form of freedom. The true freedom is understanding the historical process you're part of, and through submission to that, Hegel comes along. I never got anything out of Hegel other than late-stage Kant uh, and some Prussian stuff. Uh, Marx, who takes Hegel and says famously, I'm going to take Hegel and turn him over and stand him on his feet. And he's going to take all the dialectic of Hegel, but apply it to economics. And this is the real historical process that matters. That mankind has a story. It has chapters, and the final chapter is the ultimate triumph of the proletariat and such. And freedom, again, is, is defined as submission to that process or commitment to that process. So it's a very different definition of freedom that had, been, that had emerged in Holland, England, Scotland, uh, and then the Americas. Nietzsche, who reads like he's an individualist, cares about the individual. He doesn't care about the individual. He's all about the Zarathustra, the individual in a capital I kind of way. Uh, and Nietzsche famously dismissed, dismissed this whole other tradition, saying only an Englishman cares about happiness. That's, that's his answer to John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham and the utilitarians and John Locke, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He says only an Englishman cares about happiness. In other words, I, Nietzsche, I understand the real historical uh, mission and where, and where freedom is to be located, again, in some sort of submission to that, Lenin, of course, for him, it's not the masses, it's the vanguard of the masses, the party, freedom. And I used to live in communist China, and I used to debate these kinds of things with intellectuals there who would actually maintain these points of view that what you think of is, as, is just bourgeois Western freedom. Real freedom is submission to, in our case, the communist party. Of course, the Third Reich over the... Gates at Dachau and Auschwitz, the signs read, Arbeit macht frei. Work will make you free. Work for the German state. Work for the right. Again, this idea of submission, properly chosen submission, is where real freedom is found. Now, again, I lived in China in the early 80s under Deng Xiaoping, and used to have these conversations, and I was in Cambodia in the late 80s, and speak with French-educated intellectuals. And it's amazing that in these kind of places, everybody knows the Rousseau. Everybody knows Rousseau, Kant, Hegel, the Marxist canon, of course, but the three Western philosophers we always knew in these, in these places were, were especially Rousseau. So that is, as Voltaire said, mankind walking about on all fours. This idea that this is how you define freedom. Yeah, uh, and so the great, the great, Corruption occurred from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. So going back to this issue of trust, where does that leave us? Well, the one vision, the vision that I think is fundamentally authoritarian, believes that we need central institutions, and it argues for centralized institutions. In one form or another, it's uncomfortable with institutions that are not centralized. It all comes out of that authoritarian tradition. The problem, and it's funny, this fellow himself who wrote this is considered a conservative, Fukuyama, but his, uh, you know, he's arguing that you want high trust society, you want to live in a high trust society where you can, 
where you can have robust, centralized institutions, taking for granted, of course, that we can trust those institutions. What's neglected in his analysis is the whole problem of regulatory capture. And regulatory capture is an extraordinary field in itself. It was invented in 1972, a guy named Stigler, a friend of Milton Friedman's. And just notice that look, society sets up regulators to protect us from certain industries and certain forces. But sometimes those regulators have a tendency to get captured, to get owned by the industries it's supposed to be defending us from. There's a Marxist at Harvard named John Hansen who argues an even deeper theory called deep capture, which is that it isn't just the regulators get captured by the bad guys, it's regulators and congressmen and police and journalists and judges and academics, the capture goes very deep. Uh, I started a website eight years ago called Deep Capture that explores, well, it's won various awards as the best site on corruption in the United States, best economic investigative journalism in the United States, stuff like this, where I explore the capture and corruption of our centralized institutions. The great problem comes down to, if I'm right, and that there is more capture occurring than is sort of generally recognized, what happens is what John Kenneth Galbraith called the bezel. He spoke of the bezel. And the bezel is, in a modern society, there's, if you could sort of freeze time and ask every single person, what's their stake in the financial system? What do you own? You could add it all up, you get this much, but you look and there's only this much there. And the difference, and at any given time, there is this difference. And he calls that difference the bezel, which is the, the amount that has been embezzled from society, and none of you know it. And at any given time, there's the bezel that is growing at a fast rate or a slow rate. I, uh, I became convinced about 10 years ago there was an enormous bezel in the financial system. Uh, and the two centralized institutions that I think are the sources of it, and I think 2008, a lot of different causes for 2008, but one of the causes is it was a manifest, some of this bezel bubbling to the surface. And the two centralized institutions that are to blame, uh, central banking and central counterparty clearing. And both of these, central bank, uh, the reason I'm so committed to Bitcoin and crypto is because crypto can solve the problem that both of these organizations are presenting to society. In the case of central banking, it kind of follows, once you have fractional reserve banking, and fractional reserve bank was started, was legalized in 1844, Robert Peel in the UK. By the way, there's a wonderful Spanish economist who writes about the Austrian school and central banking that people here maybe like. His name is Jesus Huerta de Soto, and he's written on the subject. But anyway, the, once you have fractional reserve banking, you're always going to have the elites who own the banks, over-leveraging themselves. And they over-leverage themselves in one way or another. They go kaput, and they need a bailout. They need a lender of last resort. Once you have a lender of last resort, you have somebody who thinks 
you have this, a central bank, and they think they can start directing and guiding and fine-tuning the economy, the tinkerers. There's a fellow at London School of Economics who, referred, who says their vision is the economy is an enormous engine, and they're like a workman with a screwdriver, and they think they can just fine-tune it and get it just right. That's their, that's their vision. The problem is, the problem with this way of viewing the world is we laugh at the Soviet Union, those of us old enough to remember it, for trying to run a country with, without prices, without real prices. They had 23 million prices being set by apparatchiks in a bureau in Moscow called Gazprom, Gazprom or something, that uh, Gazprom, that they set 23 million prices the, how much the screws cost that would go in this bracket that would hold, go in this bookshelf. 23 million prices for everything in society being set by apparatchiks. And we say, oh, how ridiculous. What a crazy way to try to run a country. But in our society, the most important price we face is the price at which we discount the future against the present, which is to say interest rates. And interest rates are being set both in Europe and the United States, in central institutions called central banks with names like the Federal Reserve of the United States. That's, it's, you know, we laugh at the Soviets for it, but we're doing it with the most important and fundamental price in our society. Central counterparty clearing. This sounds so dull, but it is, I think, an enormous opportunity for you crypto here for Bitcoin or some Bitcoin-like technology to emerge. This is what I'm talking about. There's a, uh, when you watch a movie, you're not conscious of the grips and the gaffers and the lighting guys and such, you watch the movie. When you trade in the stock market, it's the same thing. You don't, you know, you just assume underneath it all, there's some plumbing that makes everything work. So when you buy 100 shares of IBM, it's getting your accounts over it. Well, starting about, we went public in 02, our company. And when you're a public company CEO, you're right there in the mix. We're mix I'm out there with hedge fund guys, prime brokers, banks, all these kind of people. And I'm in bio four. Well, I quickly became aware there was a bunch of criminality going on. Didn't take a lot of genius. I was asked to take part in it. By 04, I had it pretty well mapped out. I know just who was doing it, the network of hedge funds. There was a network of about 15 hedge funds in America centered on a guy named Stephen Cohen that were at the center of a huge stock manipulation scheme, which included insider trading. I started talking about it publicly and naming them by name, as I just did, and I promise no one will ever sue me because none of these guys can take discovery. And incidentally, Cohen later, this whole network came under investigation became the target of the largest federal investigation of Wall Street in history. 80-odd people have been sent to jail. Cohen himself just paid a billion eight, five. And it's the tip of the iceberg. I think the criminality goes far deeper than anything you yet imagine, even in this audience uh, on Wall Street. But the real thing that was going on that, that I got arguably a bit obsessed with is the whole question of clearing. Clearing and settlement, you, you assume that there are those, that plumbing underlying the financial system making everything work. And let me promise you, so I got into this very deeply, it's way too arcane to go into here unless I get the right questions, but 
there's far more slop in the systems that underlie the transfer of property and title in our society than you would possibly think exists unless you were part of it. There's far, let me repeat that, the, the systems by which property rights and title get transferred have gotten lots and lots of, I thought I was going to get uh, of slop. There's some academic reasons for it that they thought it was okay. There's more fault time. But basically, property rights have gotten secure, digitized and securitized and hypothecated and rehypothecated and netted and pre-netted and sliced, diced, and circumcised. And the systems lose track of who owns what. And this came, so I was making some very public criticism of this, 05, 06, 07, I was dismissed as a nut. When 08 happened, first thing the SEC did went and plugged several of the loopholes that I was talking about, but there's much more there. For example, the mortgage-backed security crisis, the American Banking Association estimated in 2009 that of the mortgage-backed securities, which is when somebody takes, like Goldman Sachs, and take a thousand mortgages, package them into a bond, and sell them, that they were, well, in general, the American Banking Association said 18 to 30% of the mortgages that were stuffing the mortgage-backed securities didn't exist. What was happening was people were, uh, somebody was getting rich, Lehman Brothers or Morgan or somebody was getting ready to issue a bond. They had expected to have the thousand, only the paperwork had been done on 750 of them. They would just go ahead and issue the mortgage-backed security anyway and stuff replace the missing 250 with some, basically, IOUs with the intent of replacing them later. But everything got so far behind in the whole mortgage-backed security industry before the crisis that when everything Chernobyl, the ABA said that 18 to 30 percent of this stuff was just kind of phantom. It didn't really, that's how much slop there was in that system of, chain, uh, that, uh, of chains of title. People didn't know who owned what. Now, I think this has all gotten... Secretary Geithner famously, privately, made this awful comment about we need to phone the runway for the big banks. In other words, that's what the U.S. Treasury said. They phoned the runway. They, they made it up. They made it so the banks would fill in all these potholes, of course, at the expense of the taxpayer. Uh, but the examples, you may have heard of the MF Global uh, scandal. A large company that melted down, $2 billion was missing. Those $2 billion of securities had been hypothecated and rehypothecated to London for some tax arbitrage, and it, when it melted down, no one could tell who owned what. That is going on, and that's the essence of why I got, 10 years ago, so superfly TNT about Wall Street. Because Wall Street was doing this openly. You didn't have to scratch too hard to find out where it was going on and how much it was going on. And they were saying, well, it's okay. It's okay because of efficient market hypothesis and stuff. Everything comes out in the wash. It's not okay. They're wrong. They turned out to be wrong. Uh, so <clears throat> that brings me to the answer, uh, to, the, to the problem. The problem is if crypto is the answer, what's the question? And I'll close on this. Uh, what system respects the consent of its participants 
while undermining the centralized institutions we've come to distrust. To me, it's the technology that's being built here by people like you, which I see as the fruition of this 500-year-old effort that started right here in Amsterdam. So, thank you for your attendance. Hope you have a good conference. I'd love to take questions. Thank you for an excellent presentation. Um, I feel like I, uh, I feel like I have an honorary degree in philosophy ju just by just by listening and attending. So I, I could listen to philosophy all day long. Good. Um, the the uh, Bitcoin audiences are are uh, famous for asking great questions. So we, we we have we have people with microphones that are um, in the back. If you want to ask any questions, I want to start though and. I want to start and ask a question of my own, though, after listening to your presentation. And I was wondering if you could explain for us and for the audience here, and the audience that's listening through through Twitter and, and the videos, um, how did your business change at Overstock when you started accepting Bitcoin? Give us an idea of, like, what, in a day-to-day -day way, what changed? What, what were some of the things that you experienced through customer support questions? Uh, did you get new media attention, for instance? Yes. Well, this story is worth telling. On December 19th, a journalist called me and said, I, uh, uh, what do you think, in a long interview on other subjects, mentioned, do you think you'll take Bitcoin? And I, I've been keeping an eye on Bitcoin for a few years. By the way, part of my, I did my doctorate in philosophy, but along the way I studied computation theory at Stanford and girdle and the math that underlies crypto. And so when Bitcoin first came along, like it, it sparked an interest. I recognized it as, as being based on the stuff I had studied 25 years earlier. So I had this affection for it. I was waiting to see what the feds were gonna do. Uh, on December 19th, and they seemed to green light it around November, or at least they said they're not gonna red light it. December 19th, the journalist calls me and says, and in the space of, a, of an interview on other subjects, says, you're going to take Bitcoin. And I said, well, maybe by the end of 2014. And I just said it off the top of my head. Well, that mention, I started seeing God, you know, showing up in Korea, Japan, and these newspapers all over the world were reporting that I had said we might take Bitcoin. So I called Coinbase. And... Just looked them up. They they sent someone out. We had one or two conversations on the phone. They sent someone out. Eight day on January second, they sent someone out on January 9th. We were live. We, so we had a fantastic experience with Coinbase. I also happen to know BitPay. I hear the same kinds of story about BitPay, so I don't want to disrespect anybody here. But I know I know that those are both excellent organizations with great backers. Uh, and they got us live so quickly, and the truth is there was no, after we got it live, well there were two phases, one was just getting it live, and the second phase, there's three phases, getting it live, being able to issue returns, when customers buy a podium and they return it, we want to give them their money back if they paid in Bitcoin and they want it back in Bitcoin. That was the second phase, and the third phase is having our international checkout process be able to accept Bitcoin. 
Well, we got the first phase live in a week. We got the second phase live a month or two ago. So we can now issue refunds in Bitcoin. I think we're still a month or so away from international orders being able to pay in Bitcoin, which of course distresses me. But uh, so it was since we got it live, it's been so seamless, haven't had to give it a second thought. There's been no problem. I know I sound like a commercial, but it's required no work from any of us. We have to re we've had to retrain some customer service agents on now how to issue Bitcoin refunds, but it's just a few minor things like that. We have about, so far, about, I think we're coming up on $2 million worth of sales, which is nice. We'll do a billion and a half this year. I expect we'll do 10-ish in Bitcoin. Uh, and that's nice. It's it's growing steadily each month. Uh, did you get any new press? Oh, from the branding. Yes. Well, once we did it, and once we went live, yes. I, as you may have, it became this. I couldn't believe the amount of. I had. I could not believe. You know, it paid for itself the implementation a hundred times over just by the press. And I really want to express my gratitude to the Bitcoin community. What apparently happened was as I hope it would happen, the early adopters out there, the Bitcoin users, started coming to our site and just as a show of support and buying a set of pillows or buying a bed. And we sold you know, a few hundred thousand just in the first two days after getting live, just people wanted to show their support. Excellent. Okay, let's, um, let's see if we have any questions in the audience. Um, we'll start here. Uh, do we have a microphone? So, um, if Bitcoin does undermine these central institutions you're talking about, what uh, what's the best possible scenario? What does your rosy picture of the future look like? Uh, well, my rosy picture of the future would be that the bezel gets squeezed out of society like the toothpaste out of the tube of the toothpaste. That it's slowly and suddenly with no major dislocations, everything gets filled in. Uh, that would be my rosy picture. My guess is it's hard to imagine this, this technology is so disruptive, it's hard to imagine it doesn't disrupt something, something a lot deep along the way. Uh, but you know, it couldn't happen to a nicer set of people. I know that it would be bad if it happens, but anything's better than the, the system, at least in the United States, the system of knuckleheads. We basically live in an oligarchy now in the United States. There's a wonderful economist, Simon Johnson, was the chief economist at IMF, now he's a professor at MIT, and he said publicly, look, what I used to deal with it at the IMF, you know, going to Argentina or Russia or Indonesia and sitting across from some young, bold leader, and it's always a new young, bold leader, these, these oligarchies always get themselves, the elites leverage themselves up too much, they crack, and the, the government bails them out. And the IMF comes in, and the government wants more money, and they say, and we need to figure out, are you, are you in Argentina, are you gonna use this money to fix things, or you're just gonna keep on bailing out your elites? Well, I, Simon Johnson, says he, am telling you, that's all that's happened in America, that you become an oligarchy. Uh, I think the, the, the history of the United States can be told as a war between two factions, Wall Street and Washington. I can personally attest, having been on the front lines of this, well, and I knew this 10 years ago, long before it became common knowledge, Wall Street has Washington under its thumb. And 
to the extent I'm actually surprised that this all that we all didn't get outlawed a few years ago by Washington. Obviously, Russia and China and other autocratic states are going to do it, but I'm surprised that Washington maybe just got away from that. But I think that uh, their their day is really going to be ruined if Bitcoin or crypto takes off. If we start seeing cryptographic ways of transferring securities, and I know there are people here like Next working on that, there's other organizations working on creating, taking this technology and applying it to capital markets, not just currency, but capital markets. I, because I believe the bezel is so enormous and and is so much worse a problem than is generally understood, I think that this that this kind of alternative technology is going to have a more dramatic effect than is generally understood because people don't recognize how big a problem uh, is there. Okay, good. Uh, let's, <laughs> let's go over here, please. Hello, uh, my name is David Orban, and I believe that uh, what you said is very true uh, regarding the distributed systems that are substituting centralized systems. And crypto is just one component in this. Uh, energy uh, produced by solar is distributed, 3D printing and manufacturing, food production, health, learning, all are part of the same process. And the nation state is being undermined by this. But the nation state is also reacting as an immune system trying to protect itself. So uh, you seem to be an optimistic revolutionary, but revolutions are always started by optimists and then they become bloody. Bolsheviks take over. And, and, uh, and what comes out of it at the end is impossible to control. Uh, the well-being of billions of people is at stake here. What's the question? What can we do concretely to stop policymakers from uh, uh, making it bloody and taking over the revolution? Well, I think you've analyzed uh, it right. I think you've analyzed it right. And listen, I've, I have so many scars from trying to. I sat there in the halls. <coughs> uh, I, the answer is nothing. I think the answer is you're not going to do anything to stop. Uh, you're not going to do anything to, to make government make the right choice. Let me tell you, in 0405, I had concrete data, proof. I had people involved. I had hoodlums from Staten Island, another Dutch name, Staten Island, uh, who were going and willing to talk to you know, the SEC with me to NASDAQ and explain what was going on and to the Senate Banking Committee and the House Financial Services and financial journalists in New York. I'm reminded of another Bertrand Russell story. Bertrand Russell was once famously, he was in India and he was lecturing on Einstein's relativity and a Hindu cosmologist stood up in the back of the audience and said, Professor Russell, you have it wrong. The universe rides on the back of a turtle. And Russell said to the Hindu professor, well, what's the turtle ride on? And the guy says, the back of another turtle. And Russell says, okay, what's that turtle ride on? The fellow says, I'm sorry, Professor Russell, it's turtles all the way down. <laughs> well, listen, I went to, we had clear proof 
that there were these flaws in the settlement system, that there were brokers wildly misrepresenting, basically it was fractional reserve banking without a reserve requirement. We had participants, we had data, we had economists, we went to NASDAQ, we went to the SEC. I was warned, if you keep pushing this burn, you're going to become the target of a federal investigation. I said, you got to be kidding me. This isn't, you know, this isn't some schmuck country. You don't get... I pushed it, I became the target of six federal investigations over 10 years, all of which went nowhere, all of which cost millions of dollars, fought, they gave up, they dropped, they gave me a letter saying they were wrong, and three months later they started another investigation. And we later used Freedom of Information Act requests to find out that there were Wall Street, there was, there was anyway, I digress. Uh, so I went to the I went to Nasdaq, the SEC, the Senate Banking, the House Financial Services, and the New York Financial Press, trying to alert them and explain to them there's systemic risk being created by this. There's deep, there's latent derivative risk that people don't understand is there because when they run sudden trades, it's like a contract, it's like a type of derivative called a contract for difference, but one with this pernicious circular effect. We could explain this, have all this data, we got nowhere. And I found it was just turtles all the way down. It's turtles. All, all the establishment that you think is overseeing these centralized institutions in the U.S. is called the DTCC. And expecting them to provide, to be doing their job. They're not doing this. I and mean, listen, I'm reporting from the front line. I spent 04 to 08 in this battle. And millions, it became my hobby. This is how I became the sport of Wall Street. Trying to expose this stuff. So I could give you some happy talk that says, if there's this disruption, this is what you can do to convince the governments. You can't, the governments aren't, they don't care, or they don't, they don't understand. They're, the, the people you're up against, you've got to remember, the people you're up against all have senators on speed dial. And I mean, I faced this myself. I used to go in and talk to senators, and they would say, and I would explain everything, and I would bring economists to explain stuff, and I would finish. The aide to the senator would tell me on the way out, you know, what you say makes sense, but every time you're here, for every time you're here, Goldman Sachs is here 10 times, telling him not to listen to you. So I think I can give you some happy talks saying you're going to make a difference for the government, you're not. I think the one thing that happened to, you, to our benefit is this got away. It got away from them. I don't think they, it's normally aggravating how slow the, Fed, the U.S. federal government can be to see something and understand it and respond. But for once it helped our side, because this came along, and I think that if really everybody had been on their, on their game, they would have stopped Bitcoin two years ago. It's gotten away from them, it's too late now. I don't think they can, but I don't think there's anything you're going to be able to do to, to, make, uh, to bring this in for a soft landing. If the system is really at its core as corrupt, as I believe it is, then as Bitcoin gets adopted, it will cause severe dislocations. Uh, I think what you're doing, though, is creating a robust parallel system to which people can quickly switch. And I think that's really about all you can do. Do you have another question? Uh, do, do you have a microphone yet? Let's go, let's go back here and then up to you. Hi, Patrick. Thanks for the great speech. Um, I think as a Bitcoin user, of course, you expect a stable currency. 
and uh, Bitcoin's uh, fracturing uh, very much, it's pretty volatile for, for the moment. And I'm from China, and I see China, uh, Chinese government has not been uh, very supportive uh, for this currency, and uh, you know, the trading volume is uh, uh, very big in China. And my question is, how do you see the, uh, the fluctuation rate of this currency in the future, and how do you think government policies are affecting uh, this currency and your business? Thank you very much. Well, uh, I'd say that the uh, first, I know that China, well, I, I, I thought they outlawed it, although I keep seeing these uh, indications that it's not really outlawed, I don't quite understand. Uh, the fluctuation risk, there's a saying on Wall Street, liquidity begets liquidity. Once you start having liquid enough exchanges, it will draw, there's network effects. There's network effects that come to play and more. The problem is you don't have liquid enough market now, and that's why there is this volatility. I'm kind of, it's hugely ironic that I'm not saying this, because, but anyway. Uh, we ourselves at Overstock don't expose ourselves to much of it. We trade out. We started off trading out instantly from 100% of our Bitcoin transactions. Then I felt that was kind of cheating and I wanted to accumulate some Bitcoin. So now we accumulate about 10% of all the Bitcoin spent on our site. We're accumulating. But the fluctuation problem is a real problem for businesses. And I think it's also going to, I was just speaking with someone earlier today who said, well, when the price of Bitcoin comes down, fewer people come in and sign up for new wallets. And then when it goes up, more people come in and sign up for wallets. Uh, that may be, and I'm sure that's true, on balance, all the volatility is probably discouraging people. However, the only way we're gonna get there is eventually enough early adopters adopt and there starts being enough liquidity and then the liquidity begets liquidity and then things should start. You shouldn't have the, the kind of volatility you have now in Bitcoin, but Mike, I don't follow it like I probably should, but my understanding is the last couple of months your the volatility is somewhat smoothed out. I would imagine just as more people buy into it, that you'll you'll see that'll happen more. And when somebody develops, I don't know if anyone developed yet, we would use it if it were a service, a way to hedge your Bitcoin risk. So you don't trade out of it so much as buy various puts and such, you buy forward contracts. And I don't, but I mean, that's another, I'm trying to indicate areas that would be good business for entrepreneurs to develop. One would be, and I know there are people working on it, Bitcoin version of a stock market. Another is a Bitcoin, a derivative market where you can, you, a good derivative market where businesses could hedge out of, could hedge through options out of their Bitcoin risk. Third, incidentally, is micropayments. I think that that Bitcoin could solve. The publishing industry has been wrecked in the last 15 years. People want to charge subscriptions or they want to charge for content or they go to advertising-based models. They haven't really, there's very few publications who can really, uh, am I singing your song here or something? Are you? Okay, there's very few publications that can really charge online subscriptions. But if 
what I imagine is a world where you go to a newspaper and it's, you know, to read some article is three cents, you are well, everyone's going to pay three cents to read it. And if they did that, it could save the publishing industry. Anyway, I think those are the three real errors, three errors that if I were interested in getting and starting another company, that's what I'd be doing. But as, anyway, the point is as more participants come in, the volatility should smooth out, should smooth out. Okay. Um, we need a microphone up here, please. And then we have time for one more question. Right, right up here. I'm sorry. Can you stand up, please? Yeah. Hi, I'm Brian Crane of Exxon Bitcoin. So you talked a lot about uh, dismantling of centralized organizations. Now I'm curious, is there a role for, in, in some contexts where centralized organizations are superior to decentralized systems? Or are you worried that, you know, Overstock being a large centralized organization as well will be, you know, dismantled or replaced by decentralized applications in the future? Uh, fair question. No, it's not that I'm against all centralized institutions. I think that there are efficiencies that come. Every corporation, by its nature, is kind of a top-down economy. Uh, there are problems when organizations get too big that are not subject to market pricing internally. But no, I'm not against, I'm not an anarchist, like some of you. I think there's a rule for government. I think there's a rule for centralized institutions. But just as the left, when I was in academia, the left tended to be obsessed with the market, idea of market failure. Guys like Paul Krugman, Joseph Stiglitz, good, good guys, well, Stiglitzes, they love exploring the ways markets can fail. And markets do have natural tendencies to fail. There are certain types of goods that are not best left in the market. But you always got to ask the question compared to what? Governments have ways of failing too. There are certain standard ways that government choice fails. And one of them is through capture. And so in designing, so by the way, I say this not as, I'm a, I'm a small L liberty guy. I'm not right wing or left. But when people on the left talk about the need to have a robust, muscular government that can stand up to these powerful corporations like Goldman Sachs, they fail to consider the possibility that what happens when your muscular government becomes a wholly owned subsidiary of Goldman Sachs. Now you got the worst of both, both worlds. Uh, so I'm not against all centralized institutions, I just think in the design of institutions we have to take more consideration of the risk of their capture. And it, all else being equal, you want peer-to-peer -peer institutions where that uh, where consent plays a role rather than uh, submission. So thank you, John. Thank you. Um, can you take one more question? Sure. Oh, okay. absolutely. Have a question over here. Is there okay. more? I, I'll stay here all day. But I know you got you got a schedule. Hi. Um, my name is John. I work for a company called Kingring. We're developing some decentralized uh, economies and service platform. Um, but I'm, I'm really curious, when is uh, Overstock going to move their shares over to the blockchain? Funny you say that. I want to be, uh, well, if I say this now, I'm, I'm gonna, it's going to get reported, and then three days from now, I'll be have guys locked in a room eating pizza and making it happen. I, uh, it's a nice... 
said to some journalists, oh, we put 40 people in a room, slid pizza out of the door, they got it done every week. Uh, funny you say that. I want to be the... F I, I want... <laughs> Consider issuing a security just to get the first Bitcoin security or blockchain security out there. I'm also exploring the possibility we're listed on NASDAQ, but can we be dual listed? On, we can be, it's possible in the States, you can have stock dual listed on more than one exchange. You, know, you can list it, it's listed on NASDAQ, it's listed in Berlin, it's listed. You know, when uh, the Bahamas exchange for, I don't know why, somebody went to all some, not me, somebody out there in the Bahamas went to the trouble to get it done. I believe we could list on a, on a blockchain kind of exchange. And I have some lawyers in the stages, they're talking to two different parties. And if anyone here has a technology or has a solution, call collect. But I, uh, I would love to be, at the very least, to take our current NASDAQ traded security and dual list it. And I may, I would also be interested, <laughs> kind of get extorted by the lawyers, but in issuing a bond or something that we could list as this, as be the first to list this kind of security. So, all right. first came out and did this, people, some people said, oh, this guy just did this stuff with Bitcoin for publicity. I'm hoping, if nothing else, this talk dispelled. You understand, this, it, this is a, a deep part of my life, what you folks are doing. And, and I, I think that's an excellent note to end on, so let's hear it again for Patrick Byrne. So we hope you enjoyed this episode about the Bitcoin 2014 conference. If you liked our coverage, please consider tipping us at epicenterbitcoin.com slash tips. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at epicenterbitcoin.com slash newsletter. And tune in next week for more interviews and coverage of Bitcoin 2014.